Well, we love stories, right? We're calling this brand new series that we're going through, The Storyteller, and it's because you and I, we love stories. It's why you watch Netflix. It's okay to admit that, okay? It's why you get excited about a new Netflix series. It's why you get excited when a new season comes out because you're like, well, where's the rest of the story? It's why in our culture, people are obsessed with books like Harry Potter because it tells an in-depth story. This is why kids grow up reading Narnia and reading Lord of the Rings because we love stories. This is why whenever you get together, you know this, whenever you get together with your good friends from high school or from college, what do you do? You tell stories. That's actually what it means to be good friends, that you have a bunch of stories of things you've experienced, of places you've been, of hilarious things that have happened. And when three or four or five of you get together, that's what you do, you tell stories. In fact, stories are so important that you cannot understand yourself apart from a story. Or you can't get to know anybody else unless they tell you a story. If you said, tell me about yourself, and all they told you was, you know, I don't know, how tall they were or how much they weighed, you wouldn't know that much about them. If, if, if you're really going to get to know somebody, they're going to say, well, let me tell you about my parents, and let me tell you about the home I grew up in, and let me tell you maybe about some good things and some hard things that happened to me, and let me tell you about my childhood and, and my adulthood, and let me tell you about my marriage, and, and you're going to need to tell stories. Now, what's interesting, I was reading a book years ago, and the guy makes a case in this book. He says, unfortunately, in the 21st century, uh, we are a people nowadays that we don't have any stories. Because our lives are so predictable, they're so boring, we take so few risks, we do so little sacrificing, that we have no stories to tell. The only stories we tell are, are what we do on our vacation, where we travel. But we don't have any significant stories to tell. And this is so important because if you, don't, if you don't have a story to connect your life to that is greater than your own personal story, you'll either become selfish or hopeless. You have to connect your little story to something greater. Tim Keller, who's a former pastor in New York City, he said, here's what's happened. He said, long time ago, people used to connect their story to God's story. We're not even saying Christianity, but just in general, if you, the, the story of human history is in some sense people trying to connect their story to a bigger story. But he said what, what happened is that went away, and then people began to connect their story to the story of their country or their nation. And now that's gone away. And people don't think about their nation much, they don't think about their country much, they think about themselves more as individuals. Well, when that was over, people connected themselves to, uh, to the story of their family. And at least my story was part of my dad and my mom's story, and it goes back, and we were immigrants, and we moved here, and this is what my family is, and this is our business, and this is our lineage, but guess what? No one does that anymore. There's a lot of reasons for that. The family's fractured. So what do people do? A lot of times their story is way too small because it's all about themselves. It's all about how they feel and what they want to do and who they want to become, which is, by the way, why people can't suffer, can't serve, can't sacrifice, because it's all about them getting everything that they want. And so into that world, Jesus Christ comes and he tells stories. Now, Jesus does way more than tell stories. Jesus is primarily God and Savior of the world who dies as our substitute for our sin. That's primarily who he is and why he came and what he did. But along with that, he told a lot of stories. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are what are called the synoptic gospels, a third of what Jesus does is tell stories. Think about that. A third of the time Jesus is talking, he's telling a story. And we're going to be looking at eight or nine of these stories that he tells over the next eight or nine weeks. 
And here's what they're called. If you, the, the word that you hear is often the parables of Jesus. Here's what parable, literally the word parable means this, to cast alongside. What, what Jesus does in telling parables is he takes something supernatural and makes it natural by telling you a story. He takes something that is spiritual and he makes it normal. Because honestly, I mean, do you know how to talk about faith? Probably not. Like, it'd be hard for you to give me a really good definition of just what is faith, and what is hope, and what is love, and what is forgiveness. It's like, you don't know. I don't know. And so Jesus wraps it in a story. And these stories, they seem non-threatening. They even seem maybe secular. They're often just using things of the day. Often it's about harvest, and sowing, and reaping, and hey, a man goes into the field, and he buys this, and he sells this, but by the end of the story, everybody's convicted. <laughs> like, you know... And, and so this is incredibly powerful. And today we're going to look at one of, the, one of my favorite parables. And it's found in Matthew 18. If you'll turn to and type to Matthew 18. Uh, and, and what we're going to talk about today, guys, is forgiveness. And when I say that, everyone goes, yes, other people should forgive people. Right? <laughs> I completely love the idea of forgiveness when somebody else is doing it. Uh, I love what C.S. Lewis says. He, says. he says, everybody thinks that forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something that they need to forgive. And so we're going to talk about forgiveness today because what Jesus often does, and this is what you're going to see, is that Jesus will begin to teach something. And it will be so difficult, and it will be so hard for people to accept and to understand and to repent and to live out that he will end up having to tell a story. And so what I want you to do is I want you to look at Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to begin in verse 15. Matthew 18, verse 15. He says, if your brother sins against you. And we know that it's not going to be just if, right? It's going to be when. Because, by the way, we, we as Christians should never, those of us who would say we're Christians, I know that's not everyone in this room, but those of us who are Christians, we should never be surprised when somebody sins against us. I mean, we have a robust doctrine of sin that understands that every person is a sinner by nature and by choice, and that sin has affected and infected every part of our lives. So you should never be surprised when somebody sins against you. Here's what he says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Here's the first thing he's going to tell us. We deal with forgiveness like a family. We deal with forgiveness like a family. Notice there he says, if your brother sins against you. Now, two questions you need to ask early on. <clears throat> Number one, you need to ask this question. And I would write this down because this is going to affect your marriage. Or I would memorize this because this is a big deal in dealing with conflict. Is it sin or is it strangeness? And if you've been married more than five minutes, you know this is something you fight about all the time. Right? What do you do? You forgive sin, you forbear strangeness. And, and that's going to be some of the wrestling that you're going to have to do. Is this an issue of integrity or is this idiosyncrasy? Are we getting at a character issue with somebody, or is this just part of their personality that's not an issue of sin? And see, part of what you're going to have to learn how to do is how to overlook things, especially strangeness. And believe me, we're going to talk about sin today, we're going to talk about forgiveness today, we're going to get into a lot of different things, but let me just say this at the, at the forefront, some of you are way too easily offended. You're overly sensitive, you're easily offended, you're hard to live with. <laughs> Somebody said amen. <laughs> and you know this is true, right? You, you're very sensitive to negative emotion. 
Uh, everything is such a big deal to you. Part of that, by the way, not all of it, some of it is that your story is too small. Your story is all about you. So the first thing, something doesn't go well in your life, in your schedule, you know, you can't handle it. By the way, this is why the Bible talks about overlooking. This is amazing. One of the only times in the Bible where it says it is the glory of a man. It says it is the glory of a man to overlook something. To say, I'm not sure, you know, I know you're late, but I'm going to overlook it. I'm not going to assume worse intentions. I'm not going to assume you were doing something foolish. I'm going to assume that you had good intentions. I'm going to assume that you're, busy, that you're busy, and I'm going to assume the best about you. So the first thing you have to ask is, is it sin or is it strangeness? Along with that, you may want to ask, is it sin or is it weakness? Now, that's different. Here's what you're asking. Is it a character issue? Is it a competency issue? Char- Let me give you an example. <clears throat> Somebody may be a bad listener because they have bad character. They don't care what you're saying. They're selfish, they're self-focused. Somebody may be a bad listener because they've never been taught how to listen. They don't know how to actively listen. They don't know how to make eye contact. They don't know how to give the verbal cues. They don't know how to restate the, the, the statements that are made. They don't know how to ask good questions. I had to learn this when I was discipling guys. We would give them large portions of scripture to memorize, and when they wouldn't memorize it, I was a young leader, and I would get upset with them for not memorizing it. And I had to realize, wait a second, for some of these guys, it's a character issue. They said they're gonna do it, they, they didn't do it. For others of these guys, it's a competency issue. They're trying so hard, they just can't do it. And if you know you're a parent, you're gonna, you're, gonna, you're gonna crush your kid if you don't bifurcate between what's a character issue and what's a competency issue. Second question you have to ask is, is this a believer or is this not a believer? Right, he says that. He says, if your brother sins against you, that we deal with sin in the church family differently than we deal with it in the world. Part of the problem with some of you is that you are expecting to, the lost world to live like Jesus is Lord, and they're not going to do it. Some of you, you're so upset. You're so upset at your mother-in-law. It's like, she's not a Christian. Some of you, you're so upset at your boss or one of your cruel coworkers. It's like, well, man, until they, we'll get to this, until they've received the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, they're not going to be able to extend forgiveness to other people. You have to understand that one of the reasons, and this is for Christians too, we struggle with this, but particularly why non-Christians struggle so much to ask for forgiveness and to confess their sins is because they don't know what to do with the sin once it's out there. Now we do. We say, here's who I really am, but Christ, I've got a, I've got a big sin, but I've got a bigger Savior. We can say that. But somebody who doesn't understand where to put all of the sin in their life once it's exposed they don't know, hey, it needs to go to the cross. Once we, once we get it out in the air, it needs to go to the cross. Then they can't really be honest about it. So you need to begin to ask this. Then look what he says. He says in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. So when people sin against you, they do something that is wrong. And, and I want to help you understand this. There are three reasons that I could think of, okay? Maybe more. There are three reasons why people need to forgive usually. Sometimes you need to forgive because of how massive of the thing that happened to you was. You know, and, and, and in a room this size, certainly in a church this size, there's going to be that. There is going to be events in your life that happened. You know how it felt. You know where you were. You know how old you were. Maybe it was a form of abuse. It was something massive. And just like our history is B.C. and A.D., your history is BC, before that event and after that event. And so for some of you, it is a massive event that you're going to need to forgive, and we're going to talk about how to do it today. For, for a lot of people, it's not that it was a massive event. It was the man or the woman who did it. 
Now think about this, this is true. What happens, and this, this, is, this will be clarifying, and this actually will be clarifying to people, this, this sermon is both for those who've been offended and the offender. So this will also be helpful for some of you who need forgiveness in the room, need to, need to um, be forgiven. Sometimes it's, it's not that the sin was that, that grievous if it would have been con- committed by somebody else, but it's that my dad did it. You know, that's why some, sometimes a spouse will say to another spouse, what's the big deal? It's like, well, it's, 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 not, it's not necessarily what you said, it's that, it's that you're my spouse. It's that we have this deep relationship. And what you, what you find in some people's lives is they don't realize why it hurts so bad, and the reason is why it hurts so bad is not what it was, but who did it. And then what's probably the most common is not how massive it was, or the man who did it, or the woman who did it, but how many times it was done. Right? That, that's, the, that's the death by a million paper cuts. What makes it so hard to forgive you is that we've talked about this. And I've told you how much it hurts me. And you said you wouldn't do it again. In fact, maybe you promised, and then I had to catch you doing it. By the way, this is why couples, they don't fall out of love, they fall out of forgiveness. Couples never fall out of love. That's what the world says. No, they don't. They fall out of forgiveness. That if you can find it, we're going to talk how, and we're going to get real practical toward the end, but if you can find the ability to forgive, that's how you stay married. That's how you stay in any significant relationship. So Jesus goes on, and he begins to talk about forgiveness. And then he begins to give some practical applications. Look again at verse 15. All this is out of one verse. Jesus had so much to say. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between him and him alone. How do you deal with it? You don't text them. Oops. <laughs> right, some of you. You don't, you don't Facebook message them. You don't put a post online about them. You don't make it a prayer request. You don't gossip. By the way, gossip is when you tell other people's sins. When you confess other people's sins, that's gossip. And he's saying, here's what you do. He says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you have gained your brother. Then look what he says in verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of one or two witnesses. Here's another principle of forgiveness. And I wish we just, we just don't have enough time to get into all this, but here it is. That you keep the circle as small as possible for as long as possible. Right? He says, go by, by yourself. Don't tell anybody else. And you deal with it. And then, and then if it doesn't work, if he doesn't listen, if she doesn't listen, I want you to get two or three people. That's it. Well, why is that? There's a couple reasons for that. First of all, um, whenever sin has always been designed by God to be covered once exposed. Right? You know that because in Adam and Eve, they, they sin and God doesn't say, well, this is great. Just walk around naked. He says, no, I'm going to cover it. Now, why is this important? Because what happens is sometimes people, they tell their sin or their spouse's sin to everybody. Never do that, especially to the in-laws. You don't ever do that. Because Here's why. This is very practical. Because every person who hears about the sin needs to see the person restored. Does that make sense? Because if you tell me, oh, my husband's got an addiction. Well, now I can't look at your husband apart from thinking about his addiction. But if I get to walk with him through it and see, you know, God restored that man. That's why you keep the circle as small as possible for as long as possible, because everybody who, know, who hears about the sin needs to see the restoration of that person. So he continues on. 
And here's what he says. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. That stands for the leadership of the church. And thank God that because we have community groups here and community group leaders and coaches who oversee them, very rarely does an issue arise so much that we tell it to the entire leadership of the church, to the elders in the church. But here's what it says. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, and that's happened, the leaders of the church have gone to somebody and said, you need to repent. You've been warned several times. You're destroying your life and everyone's life that's connected to you. Will you repent right now? And unfortunately, in some of those situations, the answer has been no. And that's when you can see in that verse, it says that you begin to treat the person like they're not a Christian. The the old school word for that is you excommunicate them. And here's what that means. The only thing that gets you treated like a non-believer is unrepentance of a sin. There is hope for every person who will ever repent of any sin they've committed. But here, this guy doesn't repent. And so Jesus sums it all up in verse 18 through 20. And I'll just read this quickly. This can be very confusing for people, but here's what he says. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, and that was rabbi language, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. What he's doing is he's giving people the ability to extend forgiveness according to the scriptures in the name of Jesus. They're saying, what you can do, that's so powerful. If you've ever had someone say, I forgive you. You have been cleansed and forgiven. He who confesses his sins will be cleansed and forgiven of them. But then look what happens. Verse 21, forgiveness brings up a lot of questions. Here's what he says. Then Peter, of course Peter, right? If you know know your New Testament, of course Peter's going to ask something. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, and it's interesting because Peter doesn't talk about his own sin. He talks about other people's sins. He doesn't say, Lord, how many times can I be forgiven? That's the gospel question. That's, that's the hard-oriented question. Lord, how many times can I? Because I need to be forgiven. He says, uh, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And some of you have been asking that same question about your spouse or against, about your rebellious kid, about your mom or about your dad. And here's what Jesus says. Or then he says, as many as seven times, which he thinks he's being generous. Here's why. Because the rule of the day, not the biblical rule, but the rule of the day, the Jewish rabbi said you only had to forgive someone three times, and the fourth time you didn't have to forgive them. But he goes on, and he says this in verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, some of your translations, this is very interesting, some of your translations will say seven times seven, some of your translations will say 77 times seven some of your translations will say 70 times 70, and you go, what's, what's going on here? It's not a real number. <laughs> That's why. It would be like us saying, if someone said, well, how many times do I need to forgive someone? I said, a bazillion. That's what it means. To infinity and beyond. That's what he means. <laughs> it means. It, it's, it's, it's such a large number because what we want is we want a law and we want a limit, and God says, I want to give you grace. And, and, and the, the, that's how much God forgives us, so that's how much we need to extend forgiveness to others. Now, now, I've not even gotten into the parable yet, but, but, but here's what's happening. He tells something, there's lots of questions, and this is what parables do, they make the complex simple through stories. And so what he's going to do is he's going to tell a story that everybody's going to be able to understand and everybody's going to get. And it happens in the next verse. Verse, Matthew 18, verse 23. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven, we'll talk about that more next week, but all the parables are about the kingdom of heaven. 
Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king, because God's a king, who wished to settle accounts with his servants. This is amazing. Here's what he's going to say. To talk about forgiveness, we have to talk about finances. But this is not a sermon on generosity or on giving or anything, but what he's saying is um, a lot of people don't understand uh, uh, forgiveness. Everybody understands finances. Um, Lots of people don't understand forgiveness. Everybody understands what it's going to be like to be in debt. And so I want you to continue to see what he says. He says this, verse 24. When he began to settle, the king goes out to settle accounts. That's financial language. One was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. Now, as soon as anybody was listening to this, they'd go, okay, this isn't a real story. This is obviously fictitious, and it's, it's told to us to teach us a lesson because a talent was one year's wage. So he's saying, he said, what he's saying is uh, there was a guy and he owed 10,000 years worth of wages to the king. And so part of it is to realize, because what you're going to do is you're going to read this story, and, and what, this is what we do when we read history. We go, wow, what, what it would it be like to be that person? It's like, you are that person. <laughs> That's the whole point of this. You're the person who owes 10,000 talents to God, and we'll talk about why. But here's what happens. Verse 25. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold. Imagine this. And his wife and children, all he had, and payment to be made. Verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Verse 27 is so key. Verse 27 is all about forgiveness. And out of pity... Mercy and grace toward the person. And out of pity on him, the master, who's God, the master of that servant, released him and forgave him the debt. What does it mean to forgive? It means to cancel the debt because of Christ. That's what forgiveness means. Like, you have not forgiven somebody if you go, they owe me. Or, you know what resentful, resentment and bitterness is? They will pay. That's what it says. This is so relevant because this is all of our temptations. I'll make my spouse pay. I'll give the silent treatment. I'll give the cold shoulder. I will make this person pay for what they did to me. What we see here is that what he does is he cancels the debt. And we're going to talk about what that looks like. But when you do that, you say, and then look what it says there. It says, verse 27, the servant released him. What happens is, it's like, I'm going to release resentment and extend forgiveness to a person who does not deserve it. I'm going to release resentment, this is important, and I'm going to extend forgiveness to a person who doesn't deserve it. Now listen, what it's saying is that everybody has a debt and that if, when you become a Christian, what God has done for you is canceled your debt toward him. And we all understand that, right? Like some of you in this room, probably all of us in this room, probably have some debt in some area of our lives. It could be a mortgage. It could be a car payment. For some of you, it's school debt. It's medical debt. And it's not uncommon for me to meet somebody with six figures worth of debt. And I've done it, and I've done premarital counseling where one or both of the people in premarital counseling are crying because they're in so much debt that it's going to affect their family and their marriage and their ability to have kids for years. Some of you, it's like, you know exactly what you owe in your house, and you know exactly how much uh, financial debt that you're in, and how much consumer debt that you have, 
How many school loans that you, own, that you need to pay off? And he's, he's taking that idea and he's saying, uh, imagine the most massive debt possible and then imagine that God cancels it for you. Now, now, this is what makes Christianity different than every other religion. You need to understand this. Every religion says there's a debt, but Christianity is the only religion that says God will pay that debt for you. Karma says what goes around comes around, and you'll eventually pay for it. Islam says, uh, do these five pillars and make this trek to Mecca, and, and maybe you'll pay off your debt. Religion says, vague religion says, basically do more good than bad. Modern, secular, millennials in America say, eat organic, ride your bike, and please recycle. <laughs> you know, and we laugh because it's true. That's how I made righteous. And, and so, every, so Christianity is the only religion in the world that says God's going to pay your debt for you. And, and God pays the debt by sending his son to die in our place for our sins. And so he begins to continue on here. He says, this is what forgiveness is. Now, let me take some time to talk about what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness, because this is important to understand this, both if you need to be forgiven by somebody, so you have the right expectations, but if you need to forgive somebody, and that's probably the case for many or most of you in this room, you need to forgive somebody. There was somebody in my life that in preparation of this sermon, I realized, you know, I need to forgive. By the way, how do you know if, you're, if, uh, if you need to forgive somebody? You have imaginary conversations with that person in your head where you win and they bow down, right? <laughs> Why is that so funny? We all get it, don't we? Okay, let me, let me tell you what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not waiting for an apology. Uh, forgiveness is not waiting for apology. There are some people, I hate to break it to you, they will never apologize to you. A uh, couple reasons. One, they're dead. That, you would be amazed at how many people are angry and bitter and resentful at people who've been dead for decades. Part of it is going to be, and I don't mean this to offend you, but they not even, they're not even thinking about it. You're thinking about it. They're living their life. And you're becoming resentful. You have to understand that forgiveness takes one person. Reconciliation takes two. Forgiveness is a biblical command that you must do. Reconciliation, Paul says, live at peace with all men as much as it accounts for you. As much as you can control it. Forgiveness is a private matter between you and God. Reconciliation is going to take conversation, negotiation, compromise, all of that. And so you don't want to wait for an apology. You can, you can actively cancel the debt and forgive that person right now. Um, secondly, forgiveness is not approving what they did. This is what's so powerful actually about forgiveness. Forgiveness is actually saying what you did was a really big deal and I can't just sweep it under the rug, and it really did hurt me, and I really was offended, and I need to forgive you. This is why, by the way, one of our staff was telling us this week when we were going over the sermon, he said, my parents always told me if somebody asked for forgiveness and they needed it, not to say it's okay, but to say you're forgiven. And that you can see the difference with it, right? It's okay, it's not a big deal, yeah, hey, forget about it, we laugh it off, we all smile. Um, I forgive you says you really did something wrong. It was really, really hurtful. And now I forgive you. So it's not an apology. It's not approving what they did. It's not diminishing the pain of it. Um, here's another one. Uh, forgiving is not forgetting. It's not forgetting or it's not trusting. 
And, and it's not trusting I'm in. Here's what I mean by this. Um, God does not forget our sin. He can't. He would, he would actually no longer be omniscient. God forgives us without forgetting all of our sin. What he does is he chooses to not actively hold it against us anymore. Forgiving also doesn't mean that you trust the person. Again, trust is earned slowly, lost quickly. That trust must, must both be given to other people and earned by them at the same time. Forgiveness also is not a feeling. Some of you will never feel like forgiving somebody. You're not going to wake up one day and go, I just today, I, find, I have not done it for 10 years, but now I feel like doing it. That's not how it works. That actually what forgiveness is, and this is so important theologically to understand this, forgiveness is an act of faith. It's not a feeling, but it's a decision of faith. Here's what forgiveness says. I'm going to cancel the record, the debt, and I'm not going to make them pay it because I know they're going to pay it. One, it's going to get paid one of two places, the cross of Christ or the lake of fire. I mean, that's actually, that's actually the basis. This is what the Bible appeals to several times. Uh, God will say, um, do not get vengeance. Vengeance is mine. Either Jesus Christ died for that sin or they will pay for that sin in hell. You don't need to add to it. You can't. And there's actually an enormous amount of freedom. You're not saying um, there's, uh, injustice is going to reign in the world if I don't make them pay. God has promised that injustice will not ultimately reign in the world and you don't need to make them pay. And then finally, forgiveness is not something that you do just once, right? Forgiveness is something that you're going to have to do again and again and again in your life. I mean, think about a mom that maybe loses a son or a daughter to a drunk driver. She forgives that drunk driver, but then what about every time on her son's birthday? She probably needs to forgive again. Well, what on the anniversary of his death? She probably needs to forgive again. And that, by the way, that's what makes all of Christianity so hard is that it's daily, that all of the commands of Scripture and all the promises of Scripture come to all of us each every day. So then he moves on from here and he says the third thing, that we should forgive because we have been forgiven. We should forgive because we have been forgiven. This is probably, in some ways, the most important thing that I'm going to say from this text today, that there is an unbreakable connection between God's forgiveness of you and your forgiveness of others. Let me just say that again. There is an unbreakable connection between God forgiving you and you forgiving others. To say it another way, forgiven people forgive people. To say it negatively, an unforgiven, an unforgiving heart is an unforgiven heart. We have to be one to forgive. And I want to show you this right out of the text. Look at verse 28. It says this, but when that same servant went out he found, this is interesting, it's the language of he was looking for somebody who owed him. And some of you, by the way, that's your life. You're looking for somebody who owes you. You're a scorekeeper. You're a relational archaeologist. You're always talking about the past. Your entire calendar is about unforgiveness. Oh, it's our anniversary. Let me just remind you of six things you've done wrong on our anniversary 12 years ago. <laughs> oh, it's my birthday. Let me remind you of what you didn't do on my birthday four years ago. And, and, and the Bible talks about not making a record of wrongs. And what happens is if you're going to go look for somebody who owes you, you're going to find it. 
eventually. And then, and then and it leads to bitterness, it leads, leads to resentfulness, it leads to comparing and competing and trying to conquer one another. This is what this guy does, and it's amazing because you go, well, wait a second, wasn't he just forgiven 10,000 talents, but he goes and starts to look for who owes him money? Here's what it says. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, this is what is so important about this illustration. A hundred denarii is a third of a year's wage. So think of whatever your salary is and imagine a third of it's taken from you. It's like, well, no matter how much you make, that's a lot of money. And, and what's point, poignant and powerful about this parable is what he's saying is the sin that's been done against you is not a small thing, but it is small in comparison to how you have sinned against God. See, this way he says, he says um, <clears throat> servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. That's what unforgiveness says, by the way, pay what you owe. Verse 29, so his fellow servant fell down, and it's interesting, you don't have to do this now, but maybe with your community group, if you look back, this is the exact same thing he does when he needed forgiveness. He fell down. But he forgot about that. And you go, well, how could you forget about it? It just happened. Exactly, that's the point. We're supposed to be shocked. And then this, he pleaded with him. That's exactly what he did. And then it's the same Greek phrase put in the mouth, the same, in the original language, it's the same phrase put in the mouth of the servant. Have patience with me and I will pay you. And then verse 30, he refused. I believe that one of the reasons that people don't forgive is there's a power in unforgiveness. It's powerful. I'm gonna hold this over you and I'm gonna be better than you somehow. And I'm going to remind you silently how much you owe me and all the terrible things that you've done and this will be in the background, this will be the background music of our relationship for the next decade. It says, and he refused, and he went, and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. See, he has, he has gospel amnesia. I don't know what else to call it. Gospel amnesia. He forgets that he's been forgiven. It's like, if you need to forgive somebody, and we're going to get toward the end to tell you practically how to do that, but, but if you need to forgive somebody, the first thing you need to do is you need to look at the gospel and realize how much you have been forgiven. I, I, years ago, I, I have so many stories from Duke University when I was doing ministry there just because I met the most interesting people there. And I remember I met this one guy, and, and it was funny, I was, as I was preparing for this, I, I, we're friends on Facebook, I looked him up, and since then he's gotten his PhD at Stanford, and I'm like, ah, oh, these guys, they go to Duke, they get their PhDs at Stanford. Um, great guy, but he, I remember he, he was in a Bible study, well, he called them spiritual leadership discussions, and he was in this spiritual leadership discussion with me, and I remember, and I was like, where do you, you know, some of these students, the things they would say to me, I'm like, you read this somewhere, um, but he came up to me, and he said, now, how can a sin committed in a finite period of time deserve an infinite punishment by God? And you're like, I've never had that thought. Most people have never had that thought. <laughs> You know, what he's saying is how can a sin that you commit in seven or eight or nine decades, it's, 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 it's actually, it's a logical question. How can I commit a sin in time and it be punished forever? That's a fair question. It's not like theologians haven't thought about these things and wrestled with these things. And, and thank the Lord, I, I had read some on this and I just said to him, I said, actually, it's, it's who you sinned against. The punishment is infinite because the person you sinned against is infinite. 
And so part of what happens is you, when you get the power, the resources, the strength to forgive is you need to realize how much you've sinned against God. First of all, realize that every time you sin against God, you give him half a peace sign. Some of you will get that later, but you, you know. <laughs> every time you sin against God, you say, I would like to be God instead of you, and I don't believe what you're saying. That you've taken everything that God has given you and you've often used it. You've used your eyes for your own selfish desires. Some of you, you've done, if you go back to what you said at the beginning, some of you have done massive things wrong. Massive. No one still knows about it. It's a secret. It's part of your secret life, but you've done terrible things. And you need to be forgiven and God did forgive you. Some of you, it's the same exact sin you've been telling God you weren't going to do for, ten, for three or four decades now. And you're still giving into it. This is not to guilt you, this is to say how gracious has God been to us so that we can then extend grace to others. I'm not gonna go into this series, but, but Jesus tells another parable on forgiveness and the main point of that is he who's been forgiven much loves much. He who feels like they've been forgiven little loves little. And some of the greatest, strongest Christians I know are ones who came out of terrible lifestyles, overt rebellious sin for decades because they realize how much they've been forgiven. And if you ever meet somebody like that, they are just so full of the grace of God. And what I find is they're the type of people that others want to tell their sin to and say, can you help me with this? Because I know that you understand the grace of God. So forgiven people, forgive people. Now look, some of you, even though I say all of this, you won't forgive. And I want to talk about why for a second because I just want to call out what it is. Some of you, you will not forgive because... You use your unforgiveness to justify a sinful lifestyle. It's like, well, what, if you don't forgive your dad, if you forgive your dad, then how are you going to justify all the drinking that you do? Because it's all because that's what you say. That's what you tell yourself, maybe. If you actually would forgive your spouse, you wouldn't have an excuse for why you look at pornography anymore. But people don't want to do the hard work of forgiveness because it ends up being an excuse to justify their own sinful desires. And so with our time left, I want to show you how to forgive. I want to show you how to forgive. Look at verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. The whole point of this is it's obvious to everybody. It's obvious to everybody that when you're forgiven 10,000, you forgive 100. It says they saw it had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and they reported all of this to their master. Verse 32, then the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all your debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailer, jailers until he should pay all of his debt. Here's what happens. We, we see this with forgiveness, that forgiveness and freedom are always connected, and unforgiveness and enslavement are always connected in Scripture. And some of you, you are a complete prisoner to your past. You are completely shackled to the sins that others have done against you. And you're bitter and you're resentful. You know what Nelson Mandela said about that? 
He said being bitter, resentful, revengeful, unforgivable, unforgiving towards somebody. He said it's like drinking poison and hoping it's going to kill them. It's going to be of no advantage to you to do that. And some of you, you are completely enslaved to things. And here's what I want to ask you very directly. Who do you need to forgive? Do you need to forgive? Some of you need to forgive somebody in your past. Some of you need to forgive your mom or your dad. Unfortunately, I have heard terrible stories about both moms and dads in the past. Both moms and dads committed all trees. Both moms and dads over, uh, in, in life tend to abandon children. Dads may do it more, but it happens with both. Both moms and dads can be abusive. So I don't know what he did, what she did, but you need to forgive somebody in your past. Some of you, you need to forgive your ex-whatever. You need to forgive your ex-boss who you didn't think was fair to you, but was fair to the other people. You need to forgive your ex-business partner who you feel like he or she has the great idea and she's making the money right now and you're not. You need to forgive your ex-boyfriend. You need to forgive your ex-spouse. As painful as it is because it divided your whole life up and somebody else is tucking your kids in. Some of you, you need to forgive somebody in your life right now, presently. Two good categories are your spouse and your kids. And nobody ever wants to admit that you can actually be resentful against your kids, but you can. Especially as they get older and you feel like, you betrayed me. You've gone against everything I've taught. You've been so ungrateful for the life I gave you and the money I invested in you and the time I spent on you. And it feels like a betrayal. I've talked to parents with kids like that. It breaks their hearts. And you need to forgive. Some of you, you need to forgive yourself. That's a whole other sermon. But the truth of that is this, that it's not ultimately between you and you, it's between you and God. And if God says you're forgiven because of Christ, you don't have a bigger and better standard than that. And so you need, it's not an issue of forgiving yourself, it's an issue of receiving the forgiveness of God. And I want to tell you how to forgive. And here's the steps. I would write them down. I'm no genius. I've just been able to read the best things written by the best people on this important topic. There are a few things you need to do. Number one, you need to realize that whatever was done against you is both rebellion and enslavement. See, when you sin, you think it's enslavement. I couldn't help it. It was late. I just felt it. I don't know what got into me. What do you think when other people sin? They are so rebellious. The truth is every sin is both rebellion and enslavement. I had a seminary professor. He said, I finally helped a guy forgive uh, the Catholic priest that molested him. He said it happened 20 years ago. The way I helped him forgive his Catholic priest who molested him is I told him, it's not just rebellion. He is enslaved to his passions. And he says, when you can just see, maybe it's only 3%, but maybe when you can see just a few percent that this person is enslaved to whatever sinful and desires and passions that led them to hurt you like they did, you have just maybe a littlest inkling of compassion toward them. Secondly, you need to make a record of wrongs. Now, the Bible says you cannot keep a record of wrongs, but you can make one. Here's what I mean by this. You need to write down what that person did to you. You need to get it out of your heart and out of your mind and onto paper, all of it. And you will probably cry when you write it. But it needs to all come out. And it needs to come out usually paper and pen, not typing it. And you need to write it all down. 
Be as specific as you can be about what happened to you. Then here's what's so powerful too. Write down next. Here's the third thing. Write down what they owe you. They owe me $10,000. Maybe it's literally money. They owe me respect. They owe me a little bit of gratitude. Some of you, it's going to be like, they owe me like 10 years of my life I feel like I lost. Some of you are like, I feel like I lost three years of my life and $300,000 in divorce court. That's what they owe me. And you write it all down. And you just, you just as, as incredibly honest as you can be. And then here's the fourth thing. You decide and determine to cancel the debt. Everything I read this week said, and in fact, you actually bury that letter and never look at it again, or you burn it. And you give it over to God, and you say, God, I'm going to trust you to deal with this. Now, where do I get this from? I get this from the Apostle Paul himself. I don't normally do this, but I want to look at one final scripture together. I don't normally go out of the text we're in, but with our time left, I want to show you. 2 Timothy verse four, chapter 4. Paul, think about this with me. This was so emotionally moving to me this week that I teared up several times in writing this down and preparing for this because the Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, this is 2 Timothy 4, this is um, his final paragraph of his final letter before he's going to die and he's going to talk about his need to forgive people. I want you to just see this. Verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. Alexander the coppersmith is not a Christian. And he did Paul incredible harm. And you got to understand the things, that the suffering that Paul went through was enormous. And now he's talking about one person. Look what he says. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. I'm not going to make him pay anymore. But does, does that mean that Paul forgets? No, look at verse 15. Beware of him. Do you see the tension there? I, I'm going to forgive him. I'm going to release him to the Lord. And I'm not forgetting what he did, though. And I'm warning other people. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. And then look at verse 16. It's not just non-Christians that sin against us. It's Christians. Look at verse 16. At my first defense. Listen, guys. Paul's going all over the world, giving his whole life for the gospel. Living in jail, preaching like crazy, living off of nothing. He gets brought to court, and here's what he says. At my first defense, nobody came to me. All my Christian brothers and sisters who I desperately needed, they didn't show up when I needed them most. And look what he says. But all deserted me, may it not be charged against them. Do you see that? I'm not going to make them pay. You go, Paul, well, where did you get this from? Look what he says in verse 17. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. God will do for me what they did not do for me. The great promise of Scripture is that Jesus Christ died in our place for our sins, and he took the penalty, and he will stand by us. And this is what's so powerful at the very end. Here's what he said. So that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed, and the Gentiles might hear it. Paul's saying, I've got to deal with forgiveness because it's actually hindering the message of the gospel going forward in my life. I can't extend forgiveness to others if I'm not receiving forgiveness from the Lord and extending it to others as well. If you guys would close your eyes with me and bow your heads, I just want to give you an opportunity right now where you are to forgive. And I want you to just start by saying, Lord, this is in your own heart, but Lord, thank you that you forgave me when. And there's going to be a moment. You're going to be like Saturday night. 
You're going to be like uh, my sophomore year of college. You're going to know the night where you needed to be forgiven, and it was real. And the cross was, the, the, the doctrines of sin and grace became very personal. You just say, Lord, thank you that you forgave me when? And then also, I just want to give you the opportunity to just begin this process by saying, Lord, I forgive whoever it is. Just set in your heart. Lord, I forgive my dad. Lord, I forgive whoever it is. Lord, I forgive and will not make them pay for what they've done, but instead entrust them to you. Lord, that's our prayer. Lord, we want to forgive other people. We want to release resentment. We want to extend forgiveness. We understand that forgiveness is at the very, 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 very center of our faith. And we understand that Jesus Christ says that the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. That Jesus, your life was the payment that paid the debt for our sin, Lord. We receive it and we want to extend forgiveness to others. We ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.